Father, I am a weak man. I'm a sinner. There's nothing special about me. There's everything special about you and your word, and that's what we're here this morning to read, to study, and to listen. I just pray that you would magnify our view of you, that you would be exalted through the preaching and proclamation of your word. You would help us to have a greater, more intimate understanding of your word that would not just... Um, not just sit in our minds as facts, but that would stir our affections, stir our souls to love you more, stir us to action so that we might live for your glory and that we might be filled with joy and contentment in you. I ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, if you would, please open your Bibles to Psalm 63. The primary purpose of the whole book of Psalms for us today is to teach us how to worship God rightly. And what I mean by that is not like what kind of music to sing or how you conduct yourself in church on Sunday morning. I'm talking about how you worship God in all of your life, your thoughts, your actions, your speech in a way that is pleasing to Him. The Psalms are the only Holy Spirit-inspired hymnal in existence. And they help us flesh out what Jesus said in John chapter 4. They help us see what it looks like to worship in spirit and in truth. And they're particularly helpful because practically they teach us how to live life in a fallen, sin-stained, cursed world where we sin against God and we sin against one another. So as we read Psalm 63... We're going to look at how David particularly responded to difficult circumstances in his life, how he responded to suffering and left us an encouraging example of how we can respond to trials with contentment and in great joy. So follow along with me as I read Psalm 63. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But... Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Now, when you study the Psalms, most of them, not all, most of them begin with an inscription. It's usually kind of italicized at the top of the psalm. And that serves as musical instruction during the time that these were written and used by Israel. It served as instruction for the musical leader in corporate worship. And it often helps us understand a little bit about the context of the psalm and why it was written. The inscription in Psalm 63 simply says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So first thing we learn is that it's a psalm. And that might sound silly, like, duh, it's in the book of Psalms. But not every song in the book of Psalms is a psalm, if that makes sense. Many of them are. I think 50-some are out of the 150 are. But a psalm is just a technical musical term that says music, or a song to be sung with musical accompaniment. That's what it means. We also learn it's written by David while he was in the wilderness of Judah, or at least inspired by his circumstances while in the wilderness of Judah. There's two different time periods in David's life when he was out in the wilderness of Judah for a prolonged amount of time. The first time was when he was hiding in the wilderness for at least 16 months while Saul was trying to find him and kill him. 
You recall that God rejected Saul from being king because of his unbelief and because of his disobedience, and he anointed David to take his place. Saul was mentally unstable, and he was so jealous of David's rising popularity in Israel that he attempted to kill him many times. The second time David spent time in the wilderness occurred when his own son Absalom led a revolution against him, which forced him to flee the city of Jerusalem. He had to flee with his family, his servants, and any loyal soldiers who would go with him. Absalom had been quietly plotting for about four years, and he formed a conspiracy to overthrow his father. And Absalom's revolt caught David by such surprise that we learn in 2 Samuel that he fled. He didn't even have shoes on his feet because of the haste with which he ran away. In order to establish his reign, just like Saul tried, Absalom amassed an army and went out into the wilderness to find and kill his own father. But out of these two different circumstances. I I believe this psalm, Psalm 63, is referring to the second one, to David's escape from Absalom. Because in verse 11, David refers to himself as the king. David would not have done that while Saul was still king. Even though David had been anointed, he hadn't been officially established as the king. And we see this fleshed out when David himself continues to recognize Saul. He refers to Saul as God's anointed one. And when he has opportunity, he won't even hurt Saul. He even feels guilty when he cuts off a piece of his robe. And he won't let his soldiers hurt Saul either because he is God's anointed. So this is why I believe this is referring to the time of Absalom's revolution. So Psalm 63 is born out of David's experience in the wilderness without food, without water, only a small host of loyal subjects, and with the threat of his own son wanting to kill him. He's exhausted, he's hungry, thirsty, distressed over his family, his people, and his own life. He left Jerusalem weeping. Now, none of us are in a literal wilderness at this moment, but all of us do face various struggles that could be viewed metaphorically as a wilderness, a time of prolonged difficulty and suffering. Some of you might be suffering from a physical ailment, sickness, or chronic illness, chronic pain. Some of you may be facing stress and the strain of financial burdens. Maybe some of you are struggling to find satisfaction in your current job. And you know, some of you may have even lost your jobs. Perhaps you're struggling because someone has sinned against you and wounded you deeply. Some of you may be wrestling with some intense temptation to sin. Maybe you're struggling with the consequences you've reaped because of your sin. Maybe even you can resonate with David as you suffer through the trial of raising children who are rebellious and disobedient. Maybe some of you are going through a wilderness because you've lost a child. You've lost a child or a parent, friend, family member, and the wound is deep. When the Lord leads us through these wilderness, we often focus on the suffering and we long for deliverance from it. Our joy and our spiritual vibrancy feel depleted. And if we're honest, we're just struggling with discontent. We're dissatisfied with everything going on in life. And we know we're feeling dissatisfied when we start to murmur, complain, or when we start to feel the temptation to be bitter towards people, towards the world, or towards God. Yet, David does not respond this way at all to his circumstances. Despite David's severe trial in this psalm, he never asks God for deliverance. He instead rejoices in the Lord. Instead of sulking, instead of asking why, why is this happening to me, he praises the Lord. He focuses his attention exclusively on God. Any desire for relief from his suffering is overwhelmed by a longing for God because God's love is better than life itself. 
There is no hint of discontent, loss of joy, or fear in David's psalm. And how on earth could he respond in such a way? Well, as we walk through this verse by verse, I want you to see that David demonstrates four habits in his life that are the secret to contentment and unending joy, no matter the circumstance. And the secret that weaves throughout this text and binds all four of these habits together is found in verse 3, where he says, you, your, speaking of God, your love is better than life. If you only take one thing away from this sermon, if you can only remember one thing, if there's a pebble that I can put in your shoe that will annoy you the rest of this week, it is verse 3, that God's love is better than life. And we'll dig into that more in just a moment. The first habit we see that David has um, formed and we need to form is to seek God. I don't have an outline up there for you, but I'll try to make the points really clear. Just didn't get it done in time before the bulletin was printed. But the first habit is we need to seek God, and it's found in verses 1 and 2. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So the very first thing out of David's mouth is his love and focus upon God. It's the the very backbone and secret to everything else that comes in this psalm. If you don't have verse 1, verses 2 through 11 are not possible. The phrase, you are my God, is not just a reference to David's relationship to God as creator and creation, but a reference to an intimate relationship, a close relationship based on a covenant promise. Notice, he personalizes it. My God, you are my God. This personalization, this possessiveness over God is made in light of the covenant promises God made initially to Abraham. We read about in Genesis 17 where God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. This is not a cold, sterile, distant relationship. David is not saying, well, since you're the creator and I'm the creation, I'm going to seek you. And he's saying, since you have promised to love me and save me and be with me in a relationship, I'm seeking you. When faced with a threatening situation, it was David's habitual practice, his instinct to run to God as a refuge because of this relationship. He knew God cared for him and would be on his side. David similarly says in Psalm 7, verse 1, O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. When we are in the wilderness of suffering, God is not distant. He is imminent. He is near with all of his power and glory. He's not uninvolved, but present and caring. And this covenant relationship is crucial. Apart from God entering a relationship covenantally with you, you have no grounds or ability to seek God or to love Him. We have no expectations and no guarantees of blessings from God apart from Him entering a covenant relationship with us. Which leaves the question, well, how can I be in a covenant relationship with God? How can I have that relationship so that I can say, you are my God? Ephesians 2.13 says it simply, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It is in Christ that is through his death on the cross as payment for our sins to satisfy the wrath of God is that is the means and the way in which we can have a covenant relationship. We just did communion. We recognize that Jesus's body and blood were the new symbols of the covenant, his life given to purchase that relationship, to remove the hostility between us and God and bring about peace. 
It is only through faith in Jesus that we can experience the satisfaction and blessings of a covenant relationship with God and cry out, my God. And with the foundation of God's covenant in place, David has firm footing to say in verse 1, I earnestly seek you. Notice the singular focus of David's search. He's not seeking God to get something. He says, I seek you. God is not a means to an end. He is the end. Our first inclination when we, feel, when we encounter distress and suffering is to seek God so that we can ask for some help. And Scripture certainly tells us that we should go to God to cast our anxieties upon Him because He cares. The Bible tells us we should depend on Him for help and not trust in our own strength. And David himself does this in Psalms 60, 61, and 62, which are about the same scenario, or at least a similar one. But at the same time, we don't treat God like a divine vending machine, where we can go up to Him at any moment, punch in the key, and get what we want. The Bible doesn't teach health, wealth, and prosperity theology. The idea that God will give you whatever you think you want or whatever you think you need to be happy and satisfied. Contrary to popular opinion, our ultimate satisfaction and joy in life does not come from happy and pain-free circumstances. It does not come from any earthly things or relationships. Ultimate joy and satisfaction can only come from the Lord himself. David said as much when he wrote in Psalm 1611, In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness. It can't get any more than full and forevermore. It doesn't end. David exemplifies that here. He's not seeking the gift, but the giver. The gift is temporary and fleeting, but the giver is infinite and eternal. And in the last part of verse 1, David draws out his current circumstances, the location of the wilderness, to poetically describe just how earnest his desire and longing for God is. He says, "My, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He uses the term soul and flesh to refer to his whole being, both physical and spiritual. They were united in a longing for the Lord, just as his physical body longed for water in the desert. This is counterintuitive to our nature, to long for God more than we long for physical food, and water, things that are essential for life. It's counterintuitive, but we automatically think that when we suffer, we need relief from the suffering. But we often don't think of our suffering as a blessing. But is it not a blessing when God uses suffering to show us the folly and the temporary nature of life so that we will focus on that which is eternal and lasting? Jesus diagnosed this unrecognized need of people to find their satisfaction in him. The Samaritan woman at the well thought she needed the things of this world to be satisfied. But Jesus said to her in John 4, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus says, your physical needs, they can be satisfied, but it's only temporary. But your most important need, your spiritual need, can only be found and met in him. After God had rescued the Israelites from Egypt, he led them into the wilderness where they experienced physical suffering. And they were overly focused on their physical needs, so much so that they missed out on the lesson God was trying to teach them. Moses said in Deuteronomy 8.3, He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
God purposely brings suffering into his people's life so that we will learn where true satisfaction comes from. It doesn't come from this world. It comes from him alone. And this really alters our perspective on how God uses suffering in our life. It serves as a reminder that the most important need that we have is God and that we should seek him above all else for contentment. Charles Spurgeon was a pastor in England in the 1800s, and he wrote, A weary place and a weary heart make the presence of God the more desirable. If there be nothing below and nothing within to cheer, it is a thousand mercies that we may look up and find all we need. Now, I want you to feel encouraged As you read this, and you hear David poetically describe his desire to see God, and you think, I don't feel that way about God, I want you to be encouraged. Because first of all, David is just like the rest of us. He was not a perfect man, and he did not always look to God for ultimate satisfaction. David was a great sinner. He was a poor father, as noted by his son, leading a revolt against him. And he was an adulterous husband, a liar a literal murderer, and an arrogant man at times. Jesus is the only one we could ever look to and should look to who perfectly kept his heart and focus on the Father at all times. So I want you to know that this is not something that we are going to be able to naturally maintain at all times as we fight our sinful flesh. But the other way I want to encourage you is by helping you see the reasons the reasons why David was so satisfied in God, so that you can grab hold of those reasons for yourself and allow them to motivate you to seek the Lord with every fiber of your being. In verse 2, David tells us the first reason why he longed for God is because he had experienced God's power and glory in the past. He says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. So in other words, David is saying, I long for you now, just as I did when I saw your glory and your power in the sanctuary. Now, the sanctuary, that literally means the holy place, and it refers to the dwelling place of God in Israel, which at this time was a tabernacle. The temple had not yet been built because that was something Solomon, David's son, would do during his reign. And within the tabernacle, you had the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, right above it, was something called the mercy seat. And God's glory and presence literally dwelled right there. And when David says he looked upon God in the sanctuary, he's not saying that he literally saw God with his eyes because Scripture elsewhere tells us that no man has seen God at any time. David couldn't have looked at the ark anyways because it was always behind a veil or a curtain. And even when the Israelites had to carry the ark into battle or to move it to another location, they always kept it covered. If you want to learn why that's important, you can go read in in, uh, 1 Samuel when the Philistines captured the ark and God started destroying them. And so they sent the ark back to Israel and the Israelites came and they looked upon it while it wasn't covered and God killed them. God is to be treated as holy. So David is not saying he looked at God directly. What he's saying is he experienced God and his power and his glory. And the list that describes all the ways God, uh, David experienced God is, is huge. He experienced God while he meditated on his glorious presence dwelling behind the veil As he was there in the sanctuary, the tabernacle, he heard and joined the Levitical musicians praising God. As he heard the congregation of Israelites coming to the tabernacle to worship corporately, he would have experienced God's power and glory. As he saw countless animals being sacrificed at the tabernacle, it would have reminded him of the power and glory of God and reminded him of the cost that it took to forgive him of his sin. As he reflected on God's gracious gift of making him king and making a special covenant with him to make his throne an everlasting one, he would have pondered and experienced God's power and glory. 
As he experienced and manifested God's power and glory, as David fought off lions as a shepherd. He defeated Goliath. He destroyed the enemies of Israel. And he was preserved while fleeing from Saul. This is just but a small portion of the things David would have reflected on. It's an avalanche of soul-stirring delight in God. And yet we today have even better reasons to delight in God. God's presence does not reside in just one place anymore. He resides in us individually and corporately. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, you are all the temple of the Holy Spirit. It says, y'all's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the literal walking tabernacles with the presence of the infinite triune God residing in us. Our corporate worship together reminds us of God's power and glory as we reflect on His power displayed historically in the Scriptures and in our own lives, our own personal testimony. We experience God's power and glory as we meditate on His presence dwelling in us, as we sing together, affirming truth about God, reveling in His glory and His might and His characteristics. We, we experience God's power and glory as we sit under the preaching of the Word, Ultimately, we revel in it as we see God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ in the flesh. And we contemplate the majesty of Jesus, the great love with which he demonstrated by taking on flesh and dying on the cross as our substitute. As we commemorate the once for all sacrifice of Jesus through communion and baptism, all of those things are like what David does. Is I reflect upon the power and glory of God in our lives. It's a tsunami of grace that should overwhelm the soul when you reflect on it. If you want to long and long for God and seek Him as much as David did, you must expose your heart continually to the worthiness of Christ as revealed in His Word. To find satisfaction in the Lord in the midst of your wilderness, you have to seek Him. And that's the first habit. But the second habit David formed was de- delighting in God. We must habitually delight in God. And this is in verses 3 through 5. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Verse 3 contains that central idea I mentioned earlier. Your steadfast love is better than life. This is another reason why David sought God so earnestly. It's another motivating reason for you to lay hold of that will motivate you to seek Him because God's love is more valuable than the life you live right now. How can David say that? That sounds like an exaggeration. How can you say... God's love is better than life. life. Life is kind of important. I mean, the opposite of life is death. So how is, this, how is this rational at all? Well, when we stop to reflect on the nature of life, it helps put everything in perspective. We can see why it's a completely rational thing to say God's love is better than life. First of all, life is fleeting. It's short Life is unstable, and it's always changing. It's full of suffering and sorrow. The only thing that is certain about life is death and taxes, as Benjamin Franklin would say. On top of that, life is full of difficulty, sadness, and suffering. And even the good things that do happen in life, the the things that bring us happiness and comfort, they're temporary, and they'll leave you only longing for more. You can't just eat at Freddy's once and be fully satisfied. You have to keep going back. (laughs) Nothing about life in a fallen, sin-stained world will ever truly satisfy. With life kept in perspective, it's easy to see how God's love is far better than anything this world has to offer. But, But what is God's love? To say God's steadfast love is better than life, what are we talking about? Some of your translations may say steadfast love, loyal love, faithful love, covenant love. But the term in the Hebrew is chesed. And you have to put a little phlegm in there when you say it. 
But it's an incredibly important word in the Old Testament. And it permeates, though you never see it in the New Testament, it permeates and ripples throughout the New Testament. It refers to God's love, which is only displayed in a covenant relationship. It's not the same as God's general love, which is shown in gracious temporal blessings to all people. Think about Matthew, where God says like, he causes it to rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's not that same kind of love. It's his special discriminating love in which he gives of himself for our benefit and for his glory. It is the outpouring of his mercy that is his compassion on us and his grace to forgive us of our sins and to bring us into a right relationship with him where we can gaze upon his glory and enjoy him forever. His steadfast love is infinite. It's faithful, unchanging, and eternal because he himself is all of those things. It's not dependent upon our circumstances. It's not dependent upon our behavior. If you're struggling with sin, God's chesed is not diminished. It is only because of God's chesed that we have eternal life. It is because of God's chesed that he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. It is because of his chesed that all that is evil and wrong in this current world will work for our good. No matter what wilderness the Lord is leading you through, the weight of the suffering is never comparable to the weight of God's steadfast love for you. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Because God's love is better than life, you can lose literally everything you hold dear and important in this life, just like Job, and yet you could still count yourself the most blessed and joyful person in existence. God's steadfast love causes David, as it should us, to erupt in worship as he says, my lips will praise you. And in verse 4, he elaborates further on how his lips will praise God. He says, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. David will let the whole world know about the name of God and all that he has done for as long as he has breath in his body. Just as a person delights in the chiefs, and their delight is evidenced by the praise coming from their lips. Or a husband's delight for his wife is evidenced in his praise of her. So is the believer's delight in God evidenced by the praise coming off of their lips. In verse 5, David goes on even further to describe his delight in God with language that speaks on a level that resonates with all of us, hits us right in our appetites. He says, my soul will be, or I think better translated is, my soul is satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. This isn't just saying, like when I eat a sandwich, I'm satisfied. That's the same thing with God. That's not what he's saying. Some of your translations may say with, with fat and marrow, but it's a poetic way of saying with the most succulent, the best food, the, the most scrumptious feast laid before me as I eat that, as I have a, a steak and a potato and vegetables and an apple pie after that, as a, as a delicious meal like that, as I'm satisfied in my stomach, so I am satisfied in my soul with you, God. His, his delight, again, is evident in how he praises God with joyful lips, even though he's facing difficult suffering. And just as you express delight 
towards someone who prepares a meal for you, college students, when you go home to visit your family and they make you an awesome meal, so does David express his delight in God. Just like God has prepared this food for me, I enjoy it. Thank you so much. How much even more college students, you know, how much sweeter a meal is when it's free? How much sweeter then is God's love knowing that we have done nothing to earn it and we can do nothing to lose it? Again, Spurgeon so eloquently says, life is dear, but God's love is dearer. To dwell with God is better than life at its best. Life at ease in a palace, in health, in honor, in wealth, in pleasure. Yea, a thousand lives are not equal to the eternal life which abides in Jehovah's smile. In the midst of your wilderness, if you find it hard to delight in God... You must ask yourself, what earthly thing has a greater grip on you than God's love? What is keeping you from being able to say like David, your steadfast love is better than life? What temporal fleeting thing has your heart? You know, Satan will try to tempt you with the things of this world. He will try to veil from your eyes the beauty and majesty of God. What treasures are you allowing to hold on to your heart that make you blind to the beauty of God? Whatever they are, you must learn to hold them only as firmly and as long as God would have you. We just be like the man who in Matthew 13, upon finding a treasure in a field, goes home, sells everything that he has so that he can buy that piece of land. Is contrary to the world. They're looking at him going, what are you doing? It's crazy. Why are you selling everything you have? Because of this treasure. Do you see God as that way? That everything else in this life pales in comparison to the treasure of the gospel, to the treasure of having Christ and the kingdom of God. If you struggle with that, ask the Lord to help you to hold the things of this world loosely and to hold on him tightly. The third habit David displays, we find in verses 6 through 8, is that he continually reflected on God. So we also must cultivate a habit of reflecting on God. Look at verses 6 through 8. I'm not going to read from the ESV anymore because I believe that there are a couple other translations that render these verses a little more faithfully to the grammar. I'm going to read from the New American Standard. Verses 6 through 8, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Just as you would ruminate, reflect, or stew over a really good meal that you just ate, sitting in your recliner, thinking, man, that was so good. So David ruminates, he stews over, he reflects on the, his delight in God, all of the wonderful things God has done for him in his life. Now, probably due to the danger that he was in from his enemies and the lack of comfort in the wilderness, David was awake at night on his bed. There were guards set up every four hours to keep a watchful eye out so that no enemy could give him a surprise attack. And it was during these late night watches that David would reflect on all the things that God had said and all the things that God had done. And he would meditate on them. This isn't like Eastern mysticism meditation where you empty your mind and you just repeat a mantra over and over and over again. This is thoughtful reflection that leads to application and action. Joyful praise, again, is a result of this reflective habit that David has because he recognizes how God has helped him and protected him. Without God, David would shrivel up in the wilderness. He would have been dead a long time ago because of all of the different dangers he faced. But God, like a bird, had sheltered David under the da- from danger under his wings. He had done it in the past and he is continually doing it now in the present. Because God's right hand, which signifies his power, sustains David, he meditated on his dependency, and it led to action. 
He says in verse 8, my soul, which is symbolic of his whole being, my soul will cling to you. That verb cling is used in Genesis 2 and talking about the relationship of a husband and wife, the close clinging that they have. David's reflection on God causes him to cling to God like glue, like a scared child that runs to his parent when he's afraid of something and wants to be picked up. And when the parent is tired and wants to put the child back down, he clings all the more tightly. That is the picture of what David is saying here. David is obeying the command of God from Deuteronomy 13, 4. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. So as you walk through your own wilderness, what truths do you find yourself clinging to? What attributes or characteristics of God do you find yourself continually pondering and reflecting on and running to as a source of strength and encouragement? In times when you can't sleep, in times of despair or anxiety, what does your heart meditate on? Are you able, in the midst of your suffering, to reflect on all the ways that God has protected you and is protecting you? Or are you just consumed with the focus on the pain and suffering? Do you reflect on the promises that God has given us, such as Romans 8.28, that He works all things together for the good of those who love Him? Our ability to reflect on God will be proportionately tied to our acquaintance with God's Word. If you know little of God's Word, you will know little of His promises. If you know little of God's Word, you will have little ammunition to fight with in the midst of suffering. That's why Paul says in Philippians 4.8, Whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And because it's not just a mindless mental exercise, he says in verse 9 right after that, whatever you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Biblical meditation should lead to God-honoring actions and thoughts. But if you're not acquainted with God's Word, then you will struggle with reflecting on Him and obeying Him in the midst of suffering. You'll be like a soldier walking out into battle without any armor and with no sword. Vulnerable and disadvantaged and unprepared. But... When we reflect on Him, we can rest securely in His protective power and act in the knowledge of who He is. Jesus' love for us means He will never let us out of that powerful hand. He says as much in John 10, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That is incredibly encouraging. But you have to know where it is in the scriptures to be encouraged by it. You have to be acquainted with the Lord to reflect on him. Yet even when we are equipped with the armor of God, when we are reflecting on him, we still have one habit left to cultivate. And that is we must learn to trust in him. It's one thing to know mental facts about God. It's another thing to act on them and trust in them. And this is the final habit that David demonstrates. He demonstrates an unwavering trust in the Lord. And even though David is satisfied in God more than life, he's not out of touch with reality. He's still in the midst of severe suffering and trial. He's in a difficult situation personally. There are all these people, soldiers, family members, servants, who are dependent upon him and his leadership in this moment. Their lives are hanging upon his decisions. The threat against his life is real. And will he trust in the Lord? Will you trust in the Lord when the threat, when the pain and the suffering is real? 
What does that look like? Well, it looks like verses 9 through 11. Saul, uh, David says this, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. With unwavering trust in God's protection, God, David confidently proclaims that his enemies will meet their doom. Yeah, they have the upper hand in the moment. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid because I am trusting in the promises of the Lord. They're going to go down to the depths of the earth. They're going to be given over to the power of the sword. They're not even going to get the honor of a proper burial. They're going to be left out on the earth and be a food for the jackals. For David, this was literally played out as Absalom and his army was destroyed by David's army in the wilderness. And David victoriously concludes, but the king will rejoice in God. My enemies will be destroyed, but the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him, speaking of God, will glory. For the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. David was certain of his calling by God. He was certain of the Davidic covenant God had made with him. He was certain of the promises which God had made to him to sustain him and to provide for him an eternal and everlasting throne. And he also knew the promises that everyone who swore allegiance to God, who makes God the object of their faith and obedience, would glory in God and praise him. All those who reject God, all the enemies of the Lord would be defeated in the end. That's a hard thing to say in the midst of suffering and pain. But yet here David is in the midst of suffering, in the midst of the wilderness, with confidence in the Lord. This confidence and assurance extends to us, church. We can be certain of the calling and the salvation we have in Christ, not because we deserve it, not because we have earned it, but because of who God is, because of His faithfulness. No matter the trials we face, God will ultimately cause us to prevail. He will bring to completion the good work with which He has begun in us at the day of Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. No thing, no circumstance, no person can separate you from his love. He will bring you from, from, from the beginning of his work in you for salvation to the very end, to glorification. And not only that, not only will he do it because he's faithful, not only will he do it because of his covenant steadfast love, he will do it because his glory, his name, and his fame is on the line. Therefore, we can resolutely trust in him and rejoice. Even when our greatest enemy, Satan, seeks to derail your faith through suffering and temptation, just like he did to Job, God's steadfast love will protect you and will not permit you to fall away. Colossians 15, 22 through 26 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Though the suffering you go through may seem to win the battle of the day, though it may be dark, may, though you may be walking through the valley of the shadow of death and you see no light, you can trust in the Lord that he has won the ultimate victory. He has won the war. It is over. The last enemy that God will destroy is death. It also has no power over us. Our enemies, the enemies of Christ, have no ultimate victory over us. And for that reason, and that reason is enough, God's love is better than life. That is the secret to contentment and joy 
no matter what kind of wilderness God is leading you through, it is enough to know that when the Lord shepherds us, when he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, he is there with us. His rod and his staff comfort us. And even in the presence of suffering, even in the presence of enemies, he prepares a feast for us and he anoints our head with oil. And it is far better to be with him in his presence than anything else. With that in mind, make sure that your focus is on the Lord. Make sure that your ultimate delight and joy is not found in anything in this world, but is only found in Him. Seek Him, even when you don't feel like it. Seek Him. Delight in Him. Reflect on Him and trust in Him so that your joy and your satisfaction will remain no matter what turmoil, no matter what rough seas you may face in this life you will experience joy that can only come from the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your steadfast love. That you would have compassion and pity on us in our sinful and weakened state. In our rebellion and hatred against you, you would send your Son to die for us so that we might be justified in your sight. Father, we marvel at your love. We marvel at your majesty, your power, and your glory. We thank you that you give yourself to us, that we can have a relationship with you, that nothing can separate us from you, that nothing in this world, no matter how severe or how painful, can ever take away our joy in you. Nothing, no matter how painful or sad, can remove our contentment in you. Father, I pray that our hearts and minds will be set upon you, that we will have that eternal perspective, that we will see our sufferings as a blessing that just draws us ever closer to you, that we would see our suffering as just a tiny blip on the radar, a, a, a little ounce of weight compared to the eternal weight of glory waiting for us in heaven. Father, I pray our hearts would be enlarged to uh, see more of your glory with each and every passing day, and that we would magnify your name, that our lips would praise you, continually and always, everywhere we go. Amen.